Hey everyone, and welcome to Areas of Interest, the podcast about undergraduate stories. I'm your host, Ariel. And I am Jay Wade. And welcome to another episode. A few things before we dive right in. Check out our contact info and our socials in the episode's description if you want to get in touch with us. Today's guest has two podcasts, Kingdom Ethics Podcast and Virtually Church Podcast. You can find these on his website at www.revjeremyhall.com. And if you didn't catch all that, then no worries. I will have links to this in the description and on our social media pages. This episode is slightly shortened, so if you would like to listen to the full episode, then please join our Patreon, which I will also have a link to in the episode description. Awesome. Hi, my name is Jeremy Hall. I have a Bachelor of Arts in Religion and Congregational Studies from Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama, a Master's of Divinity in Social Ethics from the McAfee School of Theology, a part of Mercer University in Atlanta, Georgia, and I am currently pursuing a Doctor of Ministry, ironically called a demon, we love that joke so much I can't even tell you, in justice and peacemaking as part of the ethics program at uh, Mercer University. Well, it sounds like you have a good sense of humor. (laughs) That's awesome. So how long has it taken you to get to where you are now? I mean, for the bachelors and the masters and so how many years? I have been in school for 10 years. Oh, wow. Me too. (laughs) Finished. uh, (laughs) It's it's a lot. Uh, And these degrees tend to be, there's an interesting relationship with uh, those churchy degrees, like a Master of Divinity that is your standard pastor-preacher degree. Most, some people go straight out of undergrad. You can end in May and start in spring sort of thing, but a lot of people take time off, take a career off, take a lifetime off between those two degrees. And then there's actually a built-in buffer for the doctor of ministry. They want to make sure, because that's a practical degree rather than a theoretical degree. It's not a PhD. It's about church. It's about local congregations. It's about the work of ministry. And so they require you to take approximately three years off to do the work in the field before you can even apply. So it's a bit of a journey. And I did, I spent time doing a post back between my bachelor's and my master's at Wartburg Theological Seminary. And so can you tell me a little bit about this area of interest? Because it seems like you, you went through a lot of different degrees, but can you speak on the bachelor's of arts first and explain kind of what that degree, um, where that takes you in life, and what kind of things that you learned about, just the basics? Yeah, absolutely. So um, a uh, bachelor's in a religion program isn't necessarily a religious degree, Um, especially like I studied at Samford University, which is Baptist-affiliated, but that is not necessarily a ministry prep degree. In fact, if you were going to pursue ministry, I might recommend that you pursue something else at the uh, undergrad level. But studying religion at a good university, at a liberal arts school, um, is very much an exploration in history and sociology and philosophy around religion. 
How did religion come to be? What does it mean to be religion? What do different faiths and traditions have to say about the world? What philosophies and wisdom and values do they bring uh, to the table? And how do we integrate um, religious experience with the human experience? Wow, that's that's really interesting. Actually, my dad has a bachelor's degree in theology, and it, it was a long time ago, which is why I'm not interviewing him for this podcast. <laughs> but he was telling me all the different classes he had to take, and I was just blown away at all the different cool um, classes and languages that he had to learn. Did you learn any interesting languages for your degree? So uh, lots of languages are offered depending on how you are going to tailor your degree, because you heard in the name of it, I added a concentration in congregational studies, which means I added a big sociology piece on top of the religion study itself. And so since I knew that I was going to pursue a master's of divinity later, since I knew I wanted to do church work, I did study Hebrew. But if you were going to study Islam, you could take Arabic Uh, Hindi is offered for those interested in Eastern religions. And something that uh, my program did was any language that you thought was useful, if we didn't have a specialist, we would find you one. That is amazing. Is there a lot of crossover? Between language and religion? No, between the various people who were doing those specialties. So they were, you know, people who were studying, you know, Arabic, um, were they... And they were they were definitely looking at Islam um, with a close eye. Did did they do a lot of crossover between the specialists? The so our so my path as someone in a distinctly Christian track and the path of someone in a distinctly Muslim track would intersect and diverge periodically. So while I would take a we'd both take intro to religion, we would share philosophy of religion courses and sociology of religion courses, we would diverge on things like history or theology, but then we would intersect again for, say, Eastern studies or Western philosophical studies, uh, things like that. So there, there was a sense of continuity that like we were in the same program, but the specialty tracks have their own spaces. I see. Yeah. No, I I think that makes the most sense. That's kind of how I would imagine it in a perfect world. So it's good to hear that, that they're not. Because, I mean, obviously there would be some concern if um, these different tracks were completely isolated. I went to school at Georgia College and, uh, you know, studied philosophy. So I had a Catholic, a priest in training is how I remember it. I forget exactly what he uh, he referred to himself as, but I had one of those in undergrad with me. And uh, we did a lot of religious studies, you know, because I guess a little background on me, Jeremy, is when I, typical Georgia boy, I wanted to be a preacher as well when I got out of the service. Um, but I knew very little about theology, and I thought, well, philosophy is broader, and that would give me the most bang for my buck, which is not necessarily true. I do know now, having gone through it, even from listening to you, I was kind of nodding along, like, it's really true that you can go a variety of routes and kind of get the same breadth of education. Um, Right. Because I did a lot of um, Old Testament studies at Georgia College and Buddhism. That's kind of what they offered at the time. And it intersected with feminism and 
existentialism, which, you know, have some really interesting ideas. And so it was really cool to see someone like Nietzsche, who's actively arguing against Christianity. At the same time, I'm taking uh, Old Testament studies and I'm obviously asking the professors, you know, different questions. So I was hoping that you were able to get some of that same religious comparative experience, you know, in your yeah, undergrad. Totally. And that's the right way to do it. If you're studying philosophy or religion and you're not dealing with the tension you're doing it wrong right yeah I, that's like yeah. a really good proof or a, a test if you're looking at schools thinking about one of those fields if they are overly insular run so when you study a bunch of different religions i've always been curious about people who study religions and eventually end up falling on on one path um, out of all the ones that they study, did you go into the the degree already having a religion in mind that you wanted to pursue, or did you find it along the way? So, you know, that's you, you've given me something really cool to play with there, because I came in with, I, I made it to Samford University as an evangelical fundamentalist Christian, like, a really nasty version of me graduated from high school and went to college looking to study to be a better minister, to be a better Christian. I wanted more tools. I wanted theology. Um, I wanted things that would confirm what I thought I knew, what I had been told. Um, and I didn't necessarily find that. So, my college journey, faith-wise, spiritually, was a deconstructionist journey, and then a reconstruction journey. That's amazing. And that could, and that could only happen because I was in a academic setting that challenged me, uh, where the professors um, were not hostile towards my faith, but were not going to let me just skate through. I wasn't going to be allowed to leave the same way I came in. And so in studying language and studying the real history rather than the watered-down version that you get in, say, Sunday school or something as a child, um, learning a breadth, a diversity of theology, because Christianity isn't a monolith. As diverse as the study of religion is, the study of just Christian theology and history is incredibly expansive. So seeing these stories and these perspectives and, and the work, the faithful work of people who looked and lived and thought nothing like me was essential in my personal development. So I left with a very different faith than I arrived with, but they were both about Jesus. Right. And was it difficult? Did you have a moment where you remember where you were challenged maybe and, and you noticed things in your philosophy started shifting. Was that problematic for you in any way or did you just kind of go with it and accept it? A little of both. Um, when, cause the, the, the version of me that went to college um, as an 18 year old was very, I was very arrogant. I was very self-righteous about things and I knew I knew stuff and, and a part of my 
pursuing theological education initially was thinking that I took it more seriously than everyone else. So I needed to go and sort of prove that and go get a degree in it. Um, So I wanted, I was hungry for the information. But then a lot of times what I found was disorienting. But that was also exciting. Um, And so learning to be able to hold my faith with open hands instead of clenched fists, not feeling the need to defend, but being open to explore and to receive um, allowed the intellectual experience to change me as a person. There's, um, you, you asked about if any, I pushed back on any of it. There's a textbook that I keep um, on my shelf called um, Triune Atonement, and it's a short textbook on uh, atonement theories. So that's, that's the philosophy around the question of what did Jesus do on the cross? What was accomplished? What happened there? Um, great center of debate across Christian history. And I was a freshman. It was my first ever class. I don't know how I got into it. I didn't have the prereqs. I should not have been there. 8 a.m. Monday, first day of college, a 300-level theology course. And I was handed a textbook about what happened on the cross. And I, like, the only way I could understand all of these different perspectives, because they didn't line up, there was disagreement there. So I figured it must be like a game. I'm supposed to figure out which one is right. So you can go look at this textbook on my shelf, and I have, like, I've written nope on chapters that I think are wrong and I have like points for and points against in sort of that immature space that I brought to that table of being so certain walking into that room that I wasn't ready to be challenged on something that felt so settled. I can really relate to that. I think, and this is not to go too philosophical, but I think that um, a friend of mine said, he said um, recently to me, he said, you know what's amazing? No matter how powerful the lesson, even some lessons that feel divine, um, we will eventually forget them and need to relearn them again. And so life is not learning and then bedrocking things necessarily. Life is like learning and relearning things. Like, you know, simple stuff that uh, has powerful religious connotations, like be kind to your neighbor, be kind to each other, right? Like basic compassion, Pretty much the most universal thing across uh, most religions is to be compassionate. And it's weird because we forget even that a lot. And so it's, I think it's interesting. One of the things that I felt a struggle with when I was studying feminism um, was the dichotomy between how my parents had taught me to view and treat women and their sexuality and then how this, you know, liberal school was telling me to do it. And I had to constantly negotiate with myself. Well, maybe. It's this version, but not that version. Maybe it's that some people just view things different. I constantly kept having the discussions, and inevitably I felt the tension that you must have been feeling where values and beliefs sometimes were just diametrically opposed, and you couldn't you couldn't stand on the fence. Because I think that happens a lot when you're both collegiate and spiritual, right? Um, yeah. But, it, but it's interesting for you to say, well, if anything, it taught me to be open and have a different relationship with my own faith. So it, it is kind of cool, I think. I think that's kind of the power of education anyway. Yeah, if you let it be. If you let it be, yeah. <laughs> True. I, I saw a um, 
what was it? It was a graduation from, it was an old graduation film from my seminary. And the, the person that the students had elected to speak um, said that they had been warned by their pastor that when they went to seminary, they'd encounter all these liberal ideas and things that would try to draw them away from the fundamentals of the faith. And they said, and I'm proud to say that I didn't let seminary change me. And there's, there's like a look of terror on the professor's <laughs> faces. <laughs> you have to be willing to let the work change yeah. you. There, there is a lot of transformation that goes on in college. And I'm wondering in that transformation that you went through, were there any things that kind of blew your mind that made you step back and go, Huh, why haven't I learned this already? Ooh, yes. Too, too many to list. <laughs> Feel free to list I, them all if you'd like. We've got <laughs> just a list. <laughs> it could be a long list. I think the things that I was most taken aback by are the things that have given me, are the things that are now most valuable that I learned at that level on the like one to 400 level. Um, and have really informed my ability to continue to live in this faith tradition. Um, so studying what the Bible actually is, how it actually came together, how genres function in the Bible. Um, I was raised to read the Bible in its entirety, literally, uh, no matter what. Um, if the Bible, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it was my hermeneutic, my interpretive model. Whatever it said in the English version that I had in front of me is the exact thing that I'm supposed to literally do, literally think, literally believe how I'm supposed to act. Um, and so to learn things like, like just as basic as Moses probably didn't write the first five books of the Old Testament um, or to see the hand of the editor in the text, to be taught how to read Genesis and see the documentary hypothesis at work, that there are five different books, texts, writings that are being edited together to make what we call Genesis, that really freaked me out as a freshman. <laughs> yeah, I could see that. <laughs> right? That, that rocked me. Um, but that has become so important to my understanding of the world and my role as a minister and an educator myself um, and how I think about the world. And it has empowered me to follow my vocation in a way that is faithful and honest and useful. But I was so scared of it at first. If... If I hadn't allowed it in, I y y it would be so easy to just stay stuck at where I was when I graduated high school. Because I was so encouraged as a high schooler. Like, being growing up in, in a Christian family, going to church, and I went to a Christian high school um, to be the, like, fiery evangelical 18-year-old. Like you, the the adults that matter in your life are like really excited. The program works. Here's proof. It's Jeremy. 
uh, they're not very proud of me anymore. I'm sorry um, to hear that. I mean, it seems like you've come a long way for the better, and it's a shame that they don't see that. Thank you. The, I, I hope so. I hope that's the direction I've gone. Um, I get labeled nasty things like liberal nowadays because of having partaken in and received so much from higher education. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There, so I, I was raised Seventh-day Adventist through my grandparents, my parents not so much. Um, so it, I was always told that the Bible is the word of God. And you were saying that, you know, you have your Bible in the English translation. And one thing when I was talking to my dad, who has a degree in theology, he had to um, he had to study ancient Greek in order to read the Greek mm-hmm. interpretations of the Bible and how Sometimes, and when you learn another language, whether it be a Latin-based language or any other language, the context is very different in the way that the sentence is structured, and sometimes it can be misinterpreted from one language to another. And so when my grandparents tell me, the Bible is the word of God, I said, well, does God only speak English? (laughs) Because there are other interpretations. Which Bible? Right, exactly. And so, and also just, you know, like a nitpick is... You know, I was told not to eat, uh, you know, any bottom feeders, so no shellfish, I can't eat pork, uh, all these different things would, you know, uh, send me, you know, damnation of hell or whatever. And I'm like, but but we can wear, you know, blended cotton fibers together, and that's okay. So it, it just, it. when I was given an option, I, per, I decided not to pursue it anymore, but religion has always interested me, even... At a collegiate level, I took world religions. I took magic science and religion. And I just, yeah, it was an amazing class. I loved it. And I think it's such an interesting topic, which is why I was so excited to have you on this show, because I honestly don't know if this is going to be a three-hour interview, because Jay and I both are very excited about this topic. (laughs) That is true, yes. (laughs) But, I mean, are there any other things, maybe other classes that you took that blew your mind? Like, did you... At all, so I'm a science background. Did you have to take a science class at all for your curriculum? Yes. So part of the the well-rounded uh, liberal education that I received forced me to take a science, a computer science. Um, I um, so <laughs> my transcript has an F on it for math. Oh no! Which math? <laughs> I have an F. <laughs> I failed a fake math class called Contemporary Math. Oh. It's like how to balance a checkbook and do addition <laughs> that they created for people that had no business taking oh, math. No. I still failed it. It's um, like business finance. <laughs> you yes, failed because exactly. you didn't was, understand what the... a mortgage was at 18 years old. <laughs> right? Exactly. No, it was like pay your taxes, balance a checkbook, buy a house where the assignments and we were in this like simulator thing. Couldn't do it. <laughs> so I've gone F. On my college transcripts, thank goodness there are people at uh, seminary admissions willing to ask what the F is about and not just throw you out. Um, But, yeah, I took a, um, what was it called? Human biology was the science I took. And then I took an intro to coding. So there was some of that uh, science in there and... um, Science was an interesting subject for me coming from that background. Literal six-day creation. Um, evolution is the big lie. Dinosaurs are either 
contemporaries with humans or some grand conspiracy sort of culture is where I came from. It seems um, like human biology, though, would be very in line with what you're doing. You're working with humans. So and, yes. and getting to know, you know, about their health and about certain how things interact with each other, I would imagine, is very helpful, especially, you know, and I was looking at your master's thesis and you were talking about anxiety. And I feel like that would be very applicable to human biology. Yeah, the a lot of my thesis was informed by. Uh, the human biology course was actually very useful. Um, and uh, I took death and dying in the family studies program. And the the health aspects of that have actually been tremendously helpful um, just as a minister and a person to have language around those experiences. Yeah. So I, I do have a question and, and you might have a bias about it. Um, I always ask people this question and they always give me the same answer. So I'm wondering if yours will be different. Uh-oh. Do you <laughs> No, it's fine. Do you feel like the quality of your degree is specific to the school you went to or is a theology degree or a ministry degree kind of across the board the same? I would imagine that it's very different depending on where you go. Is that true or false? It's it is so dependent on where you go. OK. Incre- like the way because. OK. So you can go to Harvard and study religion. You can go to the University of Alabama and study religion. You can go to a religious school like Samford that's still like an accredited liberal arts school. Or you can go to a radical fundamentalist far-right private Christian school like Bob Jones, Pensacola Christian, or Liberty. And you're going to get an insanely different experience at all of those institutions because something like religion that word is so big Mm -hmm. that can mean so many different things so like i studied religion as in like that's what i studied now if you do a religion degree at i i don't want to call anyone out negatively but let's just say a, a more biased Christian university, it could be a Sunday school class. Your religion degree could be a Bible degree. And that's a very different thing. If somebody was looking to go into this field, is there anything they should look out for in terms of, um, are there any schools that you would not recommend going to because they have such a strong bias versus having a school that's well-rounded? There are the... They're the classic boogeymen of places like Liberty University or Pensacola Christian or Bob Jones. Um, and then the, those circles, those more conservative circles, have traditional boogeymen like the Ivy League schools or Tulane or something like that that is viewed as liberal. I think and mo- most schools are willing to do this for you. I'd ask for the syllabus to the intro class and see what's going on there. Whether it's going to be, what do they mean when they say religion? Is this a study of the phenomenon of religion or is this a study of a religion? And if so, and maybe that's what you're looking for. Maybe you want a Christian theology degree. You need to know what kind of Christianity it is. 
And so like you were saying, with the school that you went to, you got to choose which path you wanted to take and which classes would go hand in hand with that path. Are there, how many options are there? Are there 10, 20, 100 options that you can choose? Or is it, how how often do people switch, you know? Yeah, so there's, there's of course, the phenomenon of um, switching your major. Um, a lot of people come and go that first year in the religion program. I started in religion and I finished in religion. I did tailor my experience towards going into church life. Um, some people chose to dig into a specific religious tradition, such as Christianity or Judaica um, or Islamic studies. And so there were there are options like that that are available. You could st- you could take the religion degree and a, a school like Samford that is geared towards a diverse, well-rounded experience will frequently let you do something like this and do religion and classics. Uh, so you're interested in the ancient texts. You're interested in the Greek. So you're going to do a lot of Greek and philosophy and classics studies along with your religion studies. Um, I'm very pleased that I went the liberal arts route because I got to take so many classes outside of my field. I got to augment so much. I'm one credit short of a philosophy minor and two credit short of a family studies minor. So I was able to go and pull on these other threads that looked like they could intersect with what I was studying. So I took philosophy, I took sociology, I took psychology, I took family studies um, and, and found ways to integrate those with my main field and strengthened that core. I just think it's really great how you're kind of incorporating this degree into helping people. And when I was reading your um, your website, there was something about church health. And I'm curious, what does that mean? Yeah, totally. Um, that comes from my time at Samford, um, what congregational studies is. So that was the concentration in my major, Bachelor of Arts with a major in religion, concentration, congregational studies. And so studying, so that's a lot of, you might be familiar with the term family systems theory. It's that with churches, looking at the organization as an organism. So a church could be healthy or unhealthy. Interesting. Okay. And the the way that we studied congregational studies, the way we studied congregations was in a life cycle, was in the framework of an organism or a family system uh, so that you see everything as connected. Um, you're curious about symptoms. You're cur- curious about uh, what identified patients in relationships. Um, and so I bring that sort of study to my perspective on how to lead a church, how to build a church, how to support a church, and have done some consulting work on teams and freelance um, helping churches see themselves as a living organism and being able to identify where they are in sort of their life cycle and where they are healthy and where they could use improvement. 
Um, and so I, that's sort of how that shakes out organizational health. That's very interesting. I had no idea that w- that anyone was paying attention to that. So it's yeah, that's really its own cool. field. Yeah, yeah, that's really cool to see how and and you can even get data from that. You can do like a an analysis on maybe perhaps demographics or geography. That's really interesting. My my favorite version of it is um, I developed a process that I call a narrative consultation, where if a church and it, most church you only call a consultant when you know you're in trouble. <laughs> a lot mm-hmm. of churches call consultants because they can't figure out what's going on. They don't know why things aren't working. They don't know why they're not growing. They don't know why their programming isn't landing. They don't know why they're struggling with staffing. Things like that. They want to know where to go next. And so what I've developed with that mindset of family systems and churches and organism and life cycles is getting a cross-section of a community together and getting and, and guiding them to give me their perception of the story. Because sitting here in my office in my fancy chair at my big desk with the big computer and all that, you know, like I know things. I've got books. I've got data. I know the history of this church. I know the story of this church factually better than the people that are here. But they are living the reality of this story in ways that I may be unaware of. And so that church health background has helped me to be able to get people together and guide them through revealing the perceived history, the perceived story, and the perception of where the church is and where it's going so that you can then guide that next step. Were there any other problems or issues that you had during college and I'm just curious, did you have any help from family on how to navigate this experience or did you rely on people within the university to help you? I shifted my support network to the city where I was pretty quickly. Um, So I went to school four hours by car from home and uh, very close with my parents. Uh, Called my mom every day. Someone told me to do that. So I did. And um, I'm, I'm sure she appreciated that. that. Yep, that's good advice. That's <laughs> good is. advice. Um, I would call my mom every day, but she doesn't like talking every day. So <laughs> <laughs> she's more of an introvert. <laughs> mm-hmm. And she was she was curious as to what I was learning, which helped me not feel like I was drifting from my family. So that was helpful. But uh, I moved to Birmingham, living on campus. But I also I took a job uh, as about as quick as I could uh, with strong encouragement from my um, then-girlfriend, now-wife, who knew I'd never propose if I wasn't making money. Joke's on her. I got a job at a church. Uh, So money wasn't really... uh, There was a long stint at this first church job that I took in college where I was getting paid in Sonic gift cards. Oh, wow. (laughs) We had a Sonic (laughs) manager in the church. I know he's just over there eating corn dogs like this is. Yep, my that life. was my life. It's not anymore, and I will not go back. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's great. We will not go to Sonic. <laughs> but yeah, so I by the time the by the second semester of freshman year, I had a full time job uh, on staff at a church doing youth ministry, which 
Frankly, that was irresponsible of them, and I will always be grateful <laughs> that they had such poor judgment and hired an 18-year-old to take care of the spiritual development of 17-year-olds. I will not make that sort of hiring choice for my church. I'm glad they did. <laughs> right. And you won't pay them in Sonic gift cards. <laughs> no, I will not. I, I learned I learned a lot of how not to do. Yeah, you value their actual health and, and make sure that they don't feel like like the crap they eat when they come in to work for you. <laughs> yeah. And it was really hard to pay rent in Sonic gift cards. It was. They yeah, didn't I'm want sure it was. cheesy tots and corn dogs. But um so I had that support network there in Birmingham through my congregation and the staff um, of this theologically very conservative congregation, uh, but they were trying to do the whole edgelord rock and roll church thing. Mm. Oh, yeah, that was kind of what I was yeah. <laughs> goofing about earlier, yep. Which is not, I mean, how did it work? Is it? Do you think that's super bad? What do you think It's It's that? not super bad. I think it's like how you mentioned you need to take into, con- into account the context that your organization is living in. Um, the, the model of, so in congregational studies, we come up with words like pillar church um, and pilgrim church to describe, and family church to describe different models of church. Um, that church, the rock and roll church, um, our our cards, our slogan was love, serve, rock. Um, yeah, it, they, it looked like it. a monster energy, energy drink. We met in a movie theater like we were cool. No one came, but we were cool. Um, uh, but that was there were people that we were trying to reach that the churches around us hadn't. There's it was Birmingham, Alabama. There are plenty of churches. So we had to decide who we were being called to try to minister to, who were we supposed to create community with, and sort of the indie rock scene didn't have a church that reflected what life looked like for them. And so we tried to be that. Um, And and during that time, you could go find an old uh, radio broadcast of me talking about what we called at the time the pragmatic approach to church planting of just doing what works and I disavow that the- theology and that philosophy now. Uh, that's sort of what my podcast, Virtually Church, is about, um, is locking in on values uh, rather than just pragmatism mm-hmm. and leading with what's essential rather than leading with the flourishes. So there's nothing wrong with big guitars and lights. Uh, my church doesn't have a lot of lights, but we put colored lights on the wall. Um, tomorrow I'm playing an electric guitar with a heavily overdriven tone for a couple of the songs before I preach. Um, But we're still, we're going to be values driven and not aesthetically driven. Um, It's written on our, we've got signs up around the building with our values on them. And one of them is we will never uh, allow worship to be a sideshow entertainment or uh, allow ourselves to be what has the, the language fall into the trap of chasing trends or fads. And that's really respectable, yeah. That definitely says, hey, we're going to take this somewhat seriously because, you know, it is serious. Mm-hmm. It is serious, right? So that's 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 a good stance to take, I think. So there, there's a both and. If 
your right. congregation, your community should be authentic to the context it exists in without compromising the essential values. I get really sketched out by celebrity pastors. I get really sketched out by... Like, are you talking like celebrity mega churches kind of deal? Yeah. Okay. And, and there's a way to be... There's there's not... The mega church is a technology that enables certain things and disables other things, like all technologies do. There's There's nothing... Yeah, there might be something. Mega churches are not bad or evil or fundamentally flawed because that they are. They're. I, I struggle with that too, though. I mean, the, maybe not a mega church, but a millionaire pastor. It seems like that shouldn't exist sometimes. Yeah, right? and Ugh, it, it's tough. You think about what it means to make that much money, and there's people like a, a popular example. One of the great megachurch pastors of the 20th century in America is Rick Warren of Saddleback Church um, out west. He famous for his Hawaiian shirts and casual <laughs> conversational style preaching. Wrote the Purpose Driven Life. Beca- his church became one of the largest in the world. He became insanely wealthy, and because of the values that he used to govern his life. And I don't agree with everything he's done, but I also uh, I respect his work. Um, he lives by what he calls a reverse tithe. The traditional tithe is 10% of your income you give to your local congregation. Rick makes so much money that he's decided he and his family can live comfortably on 10% and they give 90 So if you're going to make insane amounts of money yeah. and so he still makes millions of dollars in his 10 percent. no sure but, sure i mean but at least it, i can at least tip the hat right? of like it that feels respectable it's, so it's, it's something it's something we want so so direly to be in humanity is for these extremely wealthy people to please give back yeah pay taxes and give back please because you know so it's really nice to hear him do that it is I, t- I won't name names i took um there was like a missions conference for teenagers that I took our church's teenagers to. And the church that was hosting it, obviously they pick a big church to host a statewide gathering of teenagers. A couple hundred kids are going to come to this thing. You got to have room. So one of the bigger churches in the state hosts it. And we're sitting in their like fellowship hall dining space and it's beautiful hardwood floors and it's they've got art and stained glass and these immense chandeliers and a state-of-the-art sound system and lights and smoke machines. And one of my students, man, this is why I love teenagers. She looks at me and she says, you know, it's going to be really hard to talk about loving poor people in here. <laughs> Great point. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> yeah, it's really hard to talk about loving poor people when you just got off your your private jet, you know? Right? <laughs> I just got to say that yeah. um, what I wanted to mention with, um, what's his name? Warren? Rick Warren? Rick Warren. The model that he's basing that, that reverse tithe off of, it, it's a really good uh, plan for a longevity for a church because you don't necessarily need him to run the church like if something happens to him 
or he does something that people don't like, the church can still function without him based on that plan. But if you have somebody at the top, like other, you know, celebrity uh, preachers, pastors that are taking everything and not giving back, then as soon as they leave, they're taking everything with them. And then the church falls apart soon yeah. after. And that happens um, culturally as much as financially. A lot of the churches with celebrity pastors, it doesn't have to be a huge church, but a church that has elevated their ministers to these celebrity-like statuses. When that personality leaves, the church collapses. Yeah, No one can follow them. No one can replace them. Yeah, and that, that brings me back to the other thing. Do you struggle at all with compassion when you are dealing with um, people who are less educated than you? I mean, obviously, I know that when you minister, the whole point is to have compassion, but do you struggle <laughs> with it? I mean, yeah, it's just something I've always wondered. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. Don't tell anyone, though. Let's just keep this between the three of us. <laughs> I I have... I obviously care about education. I've been doing this a long time. <laughs> and I care about these things. I like to think deeply about stuff. I research before I speak. Um, I hold my own opinions um, with skepticism. I, I try to never have more than humble confidence about what I say or think or believe or guide people with. And there is, this is one of the reasons why it's so important to have an educated clergy. This is one of the reasons why if, if you, dear listener, are considering pursuing ministry or are sensing a call in that direction, that I think you really need a good theological education is because so many people think they know so much, um, especially in church life especially in religious life we if someone has gone to church their whole life they've heard countless sermons and sunday school classes and a lot of opinion and a lot of uneducated teachers pass on weak opinions based on popular understandings rather than actual study or knowledge or wisdom mm -hmm. And that can be poison. That can be dangerous. Uh, it can obscure the the truth of things. And it can obscure good ethical living. Um, I think specifically about biblical literalism with this. Every word of the Bible... The Bible does not expect you to take every word of the Bible literally. The Bible is written in various genres. If you, It was an oral tradition before it was written, yeah. right? And we brought it was brought together by editors and dozens of authors written in three languages on four continents over hundreds and hundreds of years. They thought about the world very differently than we do. Uh, they thought about history and facts differently than we do. They care much more about truth and reality than facts and stats and dates. And so if you force yourself to say, hold poetry as historical truth you're gonna you're gonna have a bad time it's <laughs> yeah. not gonna work yeah. and so if say i've and there's there's a fine line to walk there's no reason to brutalize your congregation 
with lectures from the pulpit. It's not my job every week to break down the Greek or the Hebrew or to pull back the curtain, expose the editing process of the text that we're reading. <laughs> sure. But I need to be aware of it mm-hmm. and I need to act in like in the knowledge of it. And there are spaces where that is appropriate. Um, when I when I teach, when I teach a Bible study um, or a Sunday school class, we're going to do some of that stuff. We're going to parse the Greek. We're going to look at the context uh, a little more than I might do in a sermon, though I, I have received criticism for using too much ancient languages in the sermons. I think it's fun because I am a nerd. And having... I do like to use the Greek and the Hebrew in preaching when I hit really familiar passages because it disorients everyone. <laughs> it makes them pay attention. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah no, no it's not. It's a good thing. Yeah. No, I have a, a sort of a follow up question on that same thing about ministering. So one of the greatest fears that I've ever had, and this has been from different levels of intensity of my religious connection, right? Like we've all, well, I I won't say we all, but I've had times where I felt really, really close to my Christian upbringing. And there's times that I was just completely distanced. But one of the biggest fears I've always had is claiming that God told me to say something or that I think God wants something. And it's funny because I talk to my mom about this sometimes. Like mom would be like, the Lord wants you to do this. I'm like, mom, you think that saying GD is taken like God's name in vain. I tend to think that it is when you say something in his name. Like if you right. said Jay Wade is a bad person, eh. But if you said Jay Wade said that all Republican politics are perfect, then I'd be like, I didn't say that. You know, so it would actually offend me more. So I kind of use that analogy. But I'm curious how you feel about that. And maybe this is digging too deep, but it's an interesting and a beautiful thing. Because I do believe that God can speak through people. Maybe this is too much. Aaron, maybe we're going too far away from the academic. <laughs> no, it's fine. You're ask. good. Yeah, drag us back if we need to. Especially, you're talking to a preacher here. So if I start preaching, you, you got to don't say amen because I'll just keep going. So make sure you let me know that I've gone off the rails. But yeah, it it can be a struggle, especially I, my church made some very difficult decisions in the past couple years. Uh, we actually got kicked out of our denomination. Oh, um, wow. What'd you do? Interesting. Uh, well, we welcomed gay members. Into our <laughs> well, church. you can't be going around doing that. You can't right? be going Apparently around. Accept, you can't accept everyone as they are, you know? No, so I've, I've been excommunicated <laughs> from the Southern Baptist uh, denomination. Along with oh, my that was the one my spouse was in. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm very familiar uh-huh. with different, ver- even different versions of it. Yeah, they can be quite uh, a tough group. A lot of power there. I gotta Georgia. say yes. though, Jeremy, that's very punk rock of you. Hey, hey. rock <laughs> and roll, baby. Love serve rock. We're Bringing gonna get kicked out of every beginning. denomination until we get the right one. <laughs> <laughs> that church that paid me in Sonic gift cards when my current congregation made the news for defying our denomination and welcoming LGBTQ uh, believers into our congregation, preached against us for six weeks oh, in a no. row. Did, Son- did Sonic back you guys up? You know, no word from Sonic. Reached mm. out for a <laughs> comment, but only got more gift cards. <laughs> Sonic, you need to pick a side. <laughs> right? Come on. <laughs> That's terrible that that church would do that, right? I mean, there's so there's so... 
much better things to do than yeah. to. It's definitely not a good look. Insult. Yeah. Yeah, a fellow church. It. Uh, that was a, a painful thing to witness in that whole process of multiple painful things. But all that to say, people came and sat in my office and told me exactly what God had to say to me. Mm-hmm. And it was very different than what I thought God was telling me. Mm-hmm. Right. I felt like God was encouraging me and the the leadership here to to do this hard, take this hard stance, which, I mean, it's not that hard, but to take this dangerous stance for justice and yeah. love and hospitality and inclusion. And people came and told me what God told them to tell me, and it was nasty. Thinking about my tradition as being in that the the stream of reformation that this is uh you could argue i have argued i just have to say this because it's my soapbox that baptists aren't necessarily protestants our tradition does not find its root in the reformation that began in germany it finds its root in other ways but we fall into that large category of not catholic but part of the part of the <laughs> story, what what it means to follow reformers is to be a reformer. We're supposed to keep moving. We're supposed we're being drawn into the future by God. But like Christianity's not a monolith. I can't speak for the church. And I can't speak for God capital G in total. I, I can only honestly speak to you out of my experience of divinity, my experience of faith, and uh, my experience of ministry here. I can be informed about what it means to be Greek Orthodox, but I'm not Greek Orthodox. I can partake in some of that tradition. I can bring some of that tradition and share its richness with my people, but it it has to be in that humble listening first kind of place because we can only honestly be who we are. Yeah, that's a very appealing, I think, and thoughtful view of it, um, which I think would be universally applicable to some of the situations. It also made me think, uh, my background is in law as as well, a similar approach people have to the Constitution. I'm sure that you've probably thought about how the Constitution of the U.S. has been wielded, you know, as a weapon Mm -hmm. and interpreted for good and for bad. And I think you can do similar things with the Bible, two very powerful driving documents for our uh, population. So I often think about the parallels um, between judges and priests or lawyers and priests and how you sort of very carefully walk the line of tradition. And yeah, if you act in the spirit of the founding fathers, then it might be in your best interest to th- just throw out huge portions yeah, sometimes of Sometimes you got to throw some tea. Them, yeah. But if you want to be very literal, you know, then you would just follow them blindly. And so it's a cat, it's, it's a beautiful catch 22. Um, Ariel, I was I I didn't because I feel like me and me and Jeremy are really <laughs> digging in philosophy, but um, I did. If you were all right with it, Ariel, I do think I, we should talk about the justice justice and ethics side of it, and like what he's studying and what the trends are, and or is there restorative justice in there and that type of stuff. Hey, I am here. I like that you guys are vibing. I am totally listening <laughs> and enjoying this. So feel free to talk about whatever you want. <laughs> Okay, cool. Well, then, yeah, Jer- Jeremy, I'd like to open that up. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about what your doctorate's in, what you're learning in the field right now about justice and ethics and how you want to apply it? Because I already see that 
you're applying it right now by including um, LGBTQ members. Yeah. So I thank you for asking about that. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So when I went to seminary, I uh, moved towards that um, ethics concentration. So my my degree is a master's of divinity. That's your standard pastor degree. Most ministers have one. It takes a minimum of three years to complete one. Um, and it requires a, an undergrad degree as well. So most pastors have about as much education as a new doctor. Um, so be nice to them. They're tired. They spend a lot of time in school. And I, my HR person actually has one, Jeremy. Sorry. My, our HR director at the charity, she has that degree. Nice. She's very cool. It's a great degree. Yeah, so. And it's incredible in its diversity. It has five pieces and it's just wild. It's a wild degree. Um, so I gravitated in how I weighted it because, hey, so here's some, here's, Ariel, we're going to, we're going to bring it back a little for a second. <laughs> uh, if you get a master's in divinity, it is a degree in theology, philosophy, history, uh, uh oh, there's two other ones, ministry and sociology. It's about the church. It's about how to do the work of church, but that's also about Christian history, deep theology work, deep philosophy work, how to care for people, um, how to do pastoral care. Um, everyone has to take all of these baseline courses to make sure that you're competent. Uh, but then a lot of schools like mine let you direct and wait and sort of add a concentration on top of it. Um, and so I chose social ethics because I was so interested in philosophy in undergrad and I needed an outlet for that. I mentioned earlier, if you're going into ministry, maybe don't do a religion undergrad because I came into seminary re like beefed up on this stuff from a, I think Samford's a pretty great school. I'm proud of that education, proud of what I accomplished there. And I that first year of the three-year degree, I, I could have taught those classes because I'd already done four years of that same sort of philosophy, theology, religious studies work. So maybe if you are considering uh, looking at a Master's of Divinity, work on something like history or psychology or sociology, um, something that could benefit. Gosh, we need we need ministers who understand organizational work and administration and money. Maybe go study business and then go to seminary. Anyway. Take that class that you failed. <laughs> right, yeah. Someone else needs to do the money here because I can't count, apparently. Oh, gosh. That professor. Anyway, so I gravitated... Uh, towards the philosophy aspect of ethics, how does how does this work? The um, I got a job when I graduated with the ethics center at the school, which refers to itself as the Center for Theology and Public Life, uh, which is a good way to talk about what ethics is. Christian ethics is how do we take our our theology, what we believe about God, and apply that to how we actually live. And so now working on my doctorate, I'm trying to bring those same questions, those same tools to bear on the ethical imagination of my congregation. I like that that kind of rhymes. Um, 
All right. So going back to the college bit, <laughs> I have one or what maybe podcast two. Is this? Yeah. I have one or maybe two questions left because uh, the other Please. ones I, I feel like we've covered. But uh, are there any helpful tips you can share from going to college? And it could be anything as like living with other people and things you should or should not do. Uh, do you have any tips that you could share with somebody just at any college, any degree? Do my recommendation uh, to I, I do I get to work with young people here at my church. They do exist. Um, when I send kids off to college, I encourage them to do their best to diversify their experience. Uh, take some classes that are outside your program that interest you and be open to discovering new passions. Explore new kinds of community that are offered on campus. Um, I spent, I regret the time that I cloistered myself away in my dorm room. I wish I had taken more, more fuller. I, that's, I, oh (laughs) gosh, I wish I had taken better advantage. Um, of community offerings at school mm-hmm. that's a big piece of the college experience um and not not just like football and eating in a cafeteria but like explore some clubs do some things meet some people absolutely i've been seeing a lot of people on reddit saying like i don't have any friends because everything's online and i hate this college experience but they haven't really gone out and looked at the clubs at their school and i'm like well that's because you're not really doing it right like <laughs> you need to it be, is a hard time it, it is a hard it's a time. very hard time to be a college student but it's also a really good easy time especially as gen z there's so many different niche topics and clubs to get involved with like when i'm in um because I recently graduated, so I took a bunch of my classes with um some Gen Z people. And when I went on Discord for the class, you know, to study, they were talking about all different kinds of anime and music, and they were just clicking and vibing, and it was just so amazing to see these people connect and probably connect more than they would in person. You know, because when you're in person, you're kind of shy. You don't know how to break the ice, but it's a lot easier online. And so I saw a lot of people becoming friends online and it made it so much easier to just say, hey, is anybody watching, you know, Squid Games? And then everybody, oh, I love that show, blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden you've got, you know, it wasn't a discord about studying anymore. Um, (laughs) Unfortunately for me, because I was actually there to study. (laughs) But I do feel like, like uh, Zoom has made more, it's made things more accessible to people. And I feel like church has made, um, is more accessible now to people who may not have had um, the courage to go in a social setting before if they were feeling a certain way or felt like they would get ostracized. They can now attend uh, Zoom church and they can come as they are and they can come in their pajamas and just really focus on what's important. Yeah, there's, in the uh, specifically in my subculture, there are there's a lot of talk in Christian circles and families about not losing your faith in college. That's something that people are scared of for their kids when they go away. Mm-hmm. Um, I encourage students to make it their own faith when they go to college. A lot of people. The folks that lose their faith lose their parents' faith. Mm. Decide what's valuable to you before you go. What are your... Because 
spend some time, examine your values. What's valuable to you? What is a non-negotiable to you? What is essential to you? Um, and that way, you don't have to hope that you won't be tossed. Here's some good language. Tossed back and forth by the waves and the storm. Like all of this dramatic language that people use. You don't have to be worried about that if you've already decided who you are and what matters to you. You're going to get the big picture stuff right. That's great advice. Um, my other question because a lot of people who attend college and have the uh, fortunate um, advantage of, of making friends and kind of having a group of friends, they kind of get up to a little bit of shenanigans. Did did you have any shenanigans going on while you were in college? Shenanigans? You have any funny stories? No, I didn't shenanigan. <laughs> um, I <laughs> I got up to some shenanigans. I mean, I I was I didn't get in much trouble. Because I was so busy. Mm. I was a full-time student year-round. Um, and I worked 60 to 80 hours a week for a church. Um, and I got married at the end of my junior year. To my high school sweetheart. Got married. Uh, were married during our senior year. So, didn't have too much opportunity for too much trouble. Um but, you know, I, I climbed the bell tower. I jumped in the fountain. I did the things. Yeah, those are fun. And there might be a souvenir on my desk that I stole from the library. We don't need to know what that object is, but... Well, I mean, it probably doesn't exist anyway, so I wouldn't yeah. tell you. I, it, it's not right here in front of me to remind me of my college experience. But, you know, just don't tell that to anyone. That'll just be between the three of us. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely going to edit this part out. <laughs> fix it in post <laughs> Jay do you have any more questions or any anything else philosophically you want to get I'm sure you do but uh, maybe I'm kicking myself I, for asking this yeah, Jay Wade will have to <laughs> we'll have to do our own show <laughs> no I um, I mean I have more questions um, but some of the, I mean it is pretty pretty endless I feel like for the for the purpose of people who are interested in coming and learning a little bit about the difference between philosophy and theology. I think we talked a little bit about that and then how they they kind of act in concert and they're both really awesome. And I think, honestly, I would go back, if I could go back in time, I would probably have done more um, religious studies because they are they really teach you a lot about humanity mm -hmm. and stuff. But I think for the most part, yeah, I think people probably have, our mission is done. Let me say it that way. They've got what they need. I, the, the, the stuff that I'm really interested in, um, it's really the, the, the justice and ethics that he's, that he's studying and, and what, what the perspectives, um, are. Like I said, I brought up, this is something that my wife studies, but restorative justice, mm -hmm. such a, they, they started a new committee on the campus here in Wisconsin and wow. the committee is specifically trying to figure out how to incorporate restorative justice ethics into the school's justice. So whether it's plagiarism or assault, harassment, um, can they incorporate restorative justice as opposed to the classic yeah, punitive. punitive? Yeah. So, you know, um, I think we could dig into that, but I also feel like that's a brand new subject. You know <laughs> what I mean? So, so yeah, I I don't know. Um, if you want to speak to it, Jeremy, I think that's fine. But no, I think I think we're good. I think this has been good. Um, what about you, Ariel? What you want? You want us to keep rolling? Well, on I had a question. What? So, Jeremy, talking to you yeah. has been like 
so restorative in my, uh, I wouldn't say faith, but just other people who are studying religion and and how they're doing such a great job in um, not making it about the religion that they grew up on, but actually studying the the text itself and the history and, and the philosophy behind it. So you have two podcasts that you're doing, one called Kingdom Ethics Podcast and one called Virtually Church Podcast. Can you just give me a small rundown of what those two are about? Because I know you're doing them with other people. Yeah, totally. The um, Kingdom Ethics is my primary podcast. I've been doing that one for a couple years. Uh, I host that with Dr. David Gushy. He's a distinguished university professor of Christian ethics at Mercer University, teaches undergrad and at the seminary. He is uh, also currently uh, my doctoral supervisor. Oh, awesome. He is also a PhD supervisor at the Free University of Amsterdam. So he gets around, uh, president of the Society of Christian Ethics, president of the American Academy of Religion, um, probably, arguably the leading living Christian ethics scholar, key voice in that field. Uh, so it's really great to have the opportunity to work with him. And on that podcast, uh, he's sort of the scholar and I'm the pastor. And we talk about the field of Christian ethics, uh, how to do it, what are the tools, what does it offer us? And then we bring those tools and skills and experiences and perspectives to bear on current events. All right. I think I'm, I'm going to check that one out. And what about the Virtually Church podcast? Yeah, Virtually Church podcast is in its second season. It's intentionally uh, a short run podcast. The first season was eight episodes. This season will be six episodes. There probably won't be any more after that. It's a an intentional conversation about the values of technology and the values of the church and what are they doing to each other in this world of pandemic where so much of church life has been forced into technological spaces. Uh, what do those technologies enable? What do they disable? And how does the, uh, the message or the experience change when it goes through the filter of these technologies. Mm, that's very interesting. And do you... Yeah, that's super the, interesting. The other, yeah. Do you do it with one other person or two other people? Uh, with two others. They're, uh, with um, Taylor and Jordan Mason. Taylor is a youth minister at a church in St. Louis, and Jordan is working on her PhD. They're married. Uh, her PhD in bioethics at St. Louis. Very cool. And do you use your uh, computer science class as a uh, <laughs> as a no, jumping off point? No, that class mostly taught me <laughs> how to make Lego robots. Okay. And I would argue uh, with our prof that professor hated me because he was he was a, this was our big thing the whole semester. He wanted to talk about self driving cars, and I would yell at him about how the government was going to drive me into a gulag. Oh, great. <laughs> That was my whole, that was computer science. I'm sure that was very interesting for everyone else involved. Oh, gosh. <laughs> hey, what he couldn't do, he couldn't administer quizzes if he was dealing with the crazy conspiracy theorist in the back. Luckily, I am reformed. Yeah. And wish I had a self-driving car so that I could nap on the way to work. Well, I don't think you're supposed to use them that way. And Jay would but probably, that's how we're gonna. Jay would probably not be wearing his seatbelt anyways. <laughs> <laughs> I believe I can fly. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh. 
Jeremy, I think you got at least two new subscribers. Yeah. <laughs> um, the virtual church sounds really yeah. awesome. Um, I'm gonna check out the Kingdom Ethics one too. I want to see what that's about. Yeah, yeah no, I think they're, I think they're both good. I th- but I definitely the other one the other one got two eyebrows way high. <laughs> there Very you go. high. The um and both of those are obviously aimed at a um a Christian audience, but they're not evangelical. They're not proselytizing tools. They are conversations from a perspective. Right, right. You got to narrow it down to something. Yeah, they're not sermons. But like I said, I can only honestly speak from where I am. If you do want my sermons, they're on RevJeremyHall.com. Right. I was going to say, I saw a lot of other projects that you were doing on there and some web series and stuff like that. So um, there, there is a lot of content on your website and your website is very well done. Uh, did oh, you do that you. yourself? I did. That was part of trying to get hired. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> a few you did years a great back, job. I was like, that's it. Building a good website. Yeah. So um, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> that's absolutely. That's a lot of work. I'm and- still proud of it. <laughs> you should be. Um, thank you so much for being here. I know you're a very busy pastor and it, it's just, uh, it's been great talking to you and thank you so much for taking time out of your weekend to spend with us. Oh, absolutely. It's been really fun. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much, Jeremy, for sharing your story with us. And you can find Jeremy's links to his podcast in the show notes. I would also like to thank Kevin MacLeod for making his music free to use As always, you know that I do not like goodbyes. I don't prefer them. So since it's finals week, and and you've probably already finished your finals already, but if you're feeling a little down, maybe you didn't do as well as you thought you would during the final, and you know, maybe you're having second thoughts and feeling bad, like, oh, I could have done better. Let me tell you this. My first semester in college, when I was a freshman, I slept through the entire final. I stayed up the entire night beforehand studying for the final, and then my dumbass decided to sleep through it. I had the alarm set. I have a sleepwalking problem and sleep talking problem where I turn off my alarms in my sleep if I don't get enough of it. And so since then, I have decided to set two alarms, one of which needs a password that involves me doing math in my sleep. Another incident that happened to me during finals was I took a final for a psychology class. I did really well on it too. I was getting like a really good grade in the class, so I thought. And when I got my grade back, I got an F. And I asked my teacher, what, what, I I took the final, what's going on? Like I finished it, I got a good grade on it. She graded it and gave it back to me, but I got an F in the class. Well, little did I know that in community college, you can only miss a certain amount of days. And I had reached that maximum amount. And uh, she didn't tell me that she dropped me from the class. She had me continue throughout the class, had me take all of the exams and the final, only for me to find out that I was dropped from the class midway through, like right after the midterm. So um, I don't know if that's quite right. I don't know how she sleeps at night. But um, again, if you're feeling bad about your final, just know that I have screwed up way worse than you, okay? We all make mistakes and it will be better. We sometimes have to take classes again and it is a waste of time to us at least because we know that we uh, sometimes have a bad day and sometimes that bad day might dictate a huge chunk of our life. So I just want to let you know that uh, whatever happens when you get your grade back, just know that you did your best. That's really all I have to say about that is that all we can do is do our best. 
And this is my best, so I hope you enjoyed it. (laughs) 